science story, huh? And I just thought, well, I figured it wow. out. I it was that tall. golden moment. Because science was on my side. Hello, everybody. Welcome to the Story Collider, where we bring you true personal stories about science. We are your hosts, Aaron Barker and Liz Neely. And this week, we're presenting stories about dramatic discoveries of something that's been hidden. Welcome to our episode on Revelations. (laughs) Now, you may have heard that title and thought it was in the same vein of many of our recent episodes with sort of apocalyptic (laughs) titles a little bit on the nose. (laughs) You were thinking of biblical revelations. Uh, But actually, we're thinking about a different kind of revelation today. Exactly. We were thinking of this more from a scientific sense about the power of a new insight to suddenly have information or knowledge that changes how you previously understood everything that's come before. If you think about it, that kind of thing doesn't happen too often. Right. I mean, like, how many times have you totally changed your mind about something lately? I mean, I know for me it's a really rare occurrence. And when you think about it from, like, a psychological perspective, humans have a whole set of cognitive tools that discourage us from totally shifting how we interpret information based on just one single new insight. Yeah, it makes sense if you think about it. I suppose if we if we didn't have that, we'd be changing our minds all the time. Exactly. And so I keep trying to remind myself of that these days when I'm feeling frustrated of like, why aren't people taking science seriously? Or like, why aren't they changing all of their behaviors right now? It, it, it takes time. Yeah. Today's stories, we'll see how our storytellers grapple with the reveals in their lives. Mm. Our first story is from Janice Matias. It was recorded in August 2019 at Caveat in New York City. The theme of that night was Divergence. Hi, everybody. <laughs> I want to take this um, time to thank Paula and Nissa for this incredible opportunity. Thank you so much. My story takes place in 1959 when I was seven years old. I lived in East, Arm, um, East Orange. I lived in East New York on Spanish Harlem. And at that time, um, New York City was the capital of the um, was the capital of the Jim Crow, which practiced strict racial segregation. My mother um, relocated from Puerto Rico, and she had a natural ability to always find a way to make a dollar. So she was able to move my brothers and me, my father, into a five-room apartment on East 110th Street, building 110, apartment 10. Our standard of living really, really increased. And it was all owed to my mother's relationship to our neighbor, Miss Gertrude, who lived across the hall in apartment 12. Now, my mother worked in New York City hospital and, and housekeeper, housekeeping. And she would come home, and during the night, she would be at Miss, Miss Gertrude and all day, Saturday and Sunday. I didn't, know, I didn't know what was going on. I just knew when I would peek out the door on the weekend, I would see a line of women. 
and they would go in one by one, and I would hear screaming and crying. And I wonder why didn't they run? Because I thought my mother and Miss Gertrude was beating them. Because, <laughs> you know, so I said, maybe it's a big girl thing. Well, one day when I was eight years old, I was coming from school, and usually our front door is unlocked. And this time it was locked. So I'm banging and knocking, calling, Mommy! And my mother friends, um, friends opened the door, and she, she grabs me by the arm and almost put me airborne, airborne and just slams the door. And when I noticed, she was shaking nervously. And she reminded me like that white woman in those movies that when they saw a creature, like the blob, you know? <laughs> so I thought the, the blob, I don't know if you, this is really, if you know, you know what I'm talking about. The blob was coming to get us, okay? So that night, I heard, overheard my mother say to my father, um, the pigs came and took Miss Gertrude away because she killed a woman with a hanger. So I said, oh, I don't want to get beat with a hammer, a hanger. So I, I got very scared of hangers, you know. So um, when I was um, 10 years old, uh, something, well, something started happening. My mother started coming home with bags from New York Hospital. Now, I love looking into the bags because I got introduced to bagels. <laughs> we did not have bagels in my neighborhood, you know, and just food that wasn't, you know, so I always looked in her bag, and there was one bag when I looked, and she would, she would adamantly just scream at us, and kind of scream at me, and slap me, you know, in those days, they didn't have diapers, <laughs> so, and so I didn't know what's going on, but also, I noticed that she was, had this special pot that she told us we could not touch, and she would put it on the stove, and one day I peeked into it, and it looked red and thick like a soup, but it didn't smell like a soup, you know? But I said, mm, okay, uh, my mother's a great cook. So, but every time she did this, a strange woman would come to the house. So the woman would come and be crying, but my mother would put this mixture, the soup into something and take the woman into the bedroom. And the woman would emerge and she would be happy and hugging my mother. So one day when my mother was in the room with, the, with a strange woman, I went to the stove, I took a spoon and I dipped it into the pot and I put the whole spoon in my mouth. It was the worst soup I ever tasted, <laughs> and, and I couldn't understand, so I just said, well, it makes the women happy, so it must be a big girl thing. In those days when you were a Catholic, <laughs> the nuns would come to the elementary school and pick you up, and then they would march you to Catholic school, and I was starting to hear at 10, 11, 12, talk from the big girls about certain words like pregnancy and month and abortion. I didn't understand what was going on, but I did learn in Catholic um, um, school that, that if you, as the teachers at the nuns would walk back and forth and they would rhythmically beat on their hands the, the value of being a virtuous girl and not having sex and having a, having a man to take care of you and being um, faithful and all this, I didn't understand what was going on. 
you know. But I did learn that this body was bad. That I had an I had an evilness. This body could be evil. When I was thirteen, my mother well the signing of the Civil Rights Act and my mother's ability to make money, um, she was able to purchase a house in Springfield Gardens, Queens, New York, the first housing low income in an all white neighborhood. And we started getting white women coming to the house. Now, I never met y'all. <laughs> <laughs> Y'all didn't come to my house. <laughs> but in, in, in Springfield Garden, white women started coming, and I couldn't, you know, it was weird. You know, it reminded me, it reminded me of, um, of, well, it was just weird. <laughs> but you know, I, 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 I went too far. I forgot to tell you one event when I was 10 years old. Please bear with me. My mother, came to the bedroom at a home in East um, Harlem. And she, it was like 3 o'clock in the morning. And she grabs me from the bed, and she says, I need your help. Now, my mother never asked me for anything. Matter of fact, we really didn't spend time with each other because she was very busy. And she takes me into the uh, kitchen, and it's dark. And she sits on the floor. And I said, oh, we're going to play, we're going to have quality time. We're going to play jacks, you know? <laughs> so, so she sits there, and next thing I knew, she lays back, and she opens her legs, and she exposed her vagina. Now, I didn't know what a vagina was. I knew that outside it looked like mine, but I know what I was looking at looked like the creature from the, the, from the Black Lagoon. <laughs> Yeah, I, I looked at a lot of movies. <laughs> and she hands me a long tube, and she says, take the lamp and shine it. And I was fascinated. You know, <laughs> I thought this was like a creature. You know, I thought this was like uh, the Twilight Zone. I looked at that, too. <laughs> and so I took the tube, and I stuck it in the hole. And my mother moaned. Next thing I know, she slaps her hand, my hand, and she says, go back to bed. And I was very angry because I didn't know if I won the game. You know, what's going on? It's just, I didn't know what the game was, but I know there's a winner and a loser. So going back to when I was 13 years old, um, my mother decides to teach me how to make arroz con gandules, which is Spanish rice. And she calls me down. We had like, we had like an upstairs, whoa. And, and I come to the kitchen. My mother's sitting at the t kitchen table with this regal look on her face, you know? And she says to me, it's time for you to learn how to cook rice and beans because I don't want you killing my grandkids. So, <laughs> so, I, so I was very happy. And as she sat there and she started to conduct me you know, how to cut the seasoning, how to make the sauce, how to, you know, put, you know, the preparation. I thought, this is a good time, maybe I can bring up that incident when I was eight years old, you know, because I want to know what, well, anyway. Well, I turned to her, and to kind of initiate the conversation, I said, Mommy, um, 
is white people coochie the same like our coochie? <laughs> so my mother looks at me <laughs> with a look on her face like I had two heads. <laughs> and she leans in, she says, child, what shit are you talking about? <laughs> I said, mommy, I just want to know, it's, you know, does white women coochies the same like our coochie? She looks at me, she's like, child, pussy is pussy. <laughs> so she used the big girl's term. <laughs> so now I started really feeling like I was bonding with my mother. And I wanted to ask her this, I heard that my mother's business was something, you know, that she could go to jail. So I said, mm, mommy, um, aren't you afraid of going to jail, what you're doing? So she looked at me, she kind of smirked. She was kind of surprised that I knew something, but I didn't know. She just kind of said, she said, child, I work for the mafia. They ain't gonna let anything happen to me, they need me. So I knew from East Holland that the mafia were some dangerous people, so for some reason that made me feel good. <laughs> Then my, I said, I'm going to ask her the ultimate question, what I've always suspected, you know? So I said, Mommy, don't you think what you're doing, you can go to hell? That you're killing babies? My mother put a stance like she was going to get ready her whole demeanor changed. And she just looked at me with piercing eyes, like if there were knives, I would have been dead, okay? And she says, let me tell you something, child. You don't know how it is to be a woman today. I hope, I hope in your generation it be different. But women today have no rights. They need a man for everything. A man can mistreat you, beat you, kill you. Ain't nothing gonna happen to them. Let me tell you something. If you get pregnant, nobody gonna want you. You're gonna have to leave your family. You can't get a job because they're gonna label you as a whore. And if you have a kid in this, they're gonna label, put a label that he's a bastard on his birth certificate and give him a whole life, a life of a hardship and trouble. So don't tell me what I'm doing is murder. You don't know what it is. I tell you, if a woman has a miscarriage and she goes to a doctor who's just white or her husband or her boyfriend or her neighbor says she did something, they can arrest her. They can put her, sentence her for 20 years, 25 to life, and she might get the death penalty just because she had a miscarriage. So don't tell me. Uh, yes, I make my money. I make a few dollars here. But the decision on, on the woman is on her. I just give her something. I just give her help. Just help her in her times of trouble. I put the rice in the pot. 
put the broth, I cover it, and then I sat down and the rest of the day was talking about how to make the perfect rice. When I was 15, I was in the kitchen. I didn't feel good. My mother comes down and she walks and then she stops abruptly and she looks at me. I mean, she looked at me like she was looking through, my, through me, you know? Like she was really like x-rays. She said, you're pregnant. I said, no, I'm not. She says, you've been messing with boys, haven't you? And I kind of lowered my head. She said, well, you better decide what you want to do. That month, my period didn't come. I was 15. I told my mother, yes, I'll have a, I learned the word abortion. And as I laid on the bed, spread my legs, my mother brought the pot. I knew now what that mixture was for. My mother brought the wire, not the wire, the long tubes. Now I knew what that was for. And as she injected the solution into my uterus, I closed my eyes, took a deep breath, and I said, I'm a big girl now. Thank you. That was Janice Matias. Janice is a dancer, singer, actress, comedy writer, and storyteller who performs all over New York City. She's currently revamping her solo show, Pussynomics, a comedy, which is a political satire on the selling and marketing of the female persona. You can learn more about Janice on her website, janicematias.biz. Thank you so much, Janice, for sharing that story. I know that it's a, a really personal story to share. And mm. I just really admire the way that Janice told it, the staying in her mindset as a child throughout. Very powerfully done. Mm -hmm. If you love Janice's story as much as I did, we have a two-part series on abortion, uh, stories from patients and doctors that we aired last year. I would recommend that. You can find it at our website, storycliter.org. It's one of the things I'm most proud of from Story Collider is being able to explore all the light and the dark, all of the hilarious and heartbreaking parts of science, and particularly stories that have been hidden for a really long time or ignored or silenced. Um, you will see us attempting to continue this tradition on our weekly live shows, which are now live streaming every Friday at 7 p.m. Eastern. You can find them on our website, storycollider.org. Yeah, and if you want to be able to see them on the big screen, so to speak, you can go to crowdcast.io slash the story collider and find them there, too. Uh, we have a lot of fun every Friday. We really appreciate everyone who comes out, metaphorically speaking. Erin <laughs> is the host, and so I get to just watch, which is amazing. And I love we're asking people to share their own stories, whether that's a 10-word story in the chat or having them email us uh, to talk about what's going on in their lives or experiences that they've had. Yeah, in last week's episode, you may remember, we asked folks who are essential workers, medical professionals who are out there doing the work, keeping us all going right now, to share a little glimpse into their lives. And so I have one listener email to share today from Asher. 
Uh, Asher says he's studying marine biology and has an upcoming internship at Big Low Labs focusing on marine microbes under one of the leading research scientists in the field, and it may not happen. And he says, however, I still have to work at my day job building toilets for sailboats, even though my job is obviously non-essential because my boss refuses to close up shop and the state isn't enforcing the stay-at-home order. I have to wonder how many people are in my position, knowing enough about math and science to understand the clear and present danger of this grossly negligent behavior of my boss, but are still forced to work at a non-essential job where coworkers aren't taking it seriously and don't understand the size of the tidal wave of death looming on the horizon. And thank you, Asher, for sharing that with us. I know that a lot of people are, are coping with the disappointment like you may deal with with your internship coming up, and a lot of people are, are coping with the same kinds of fears and concerns right now as well. I'm really sorry to hear that you're in this position. One of the hardest parts about being a scientist or being a science communicator, just someone who has information and is engaged in the sometimes thankless task of trying to get other people to listen to how dangerous or important something is, it can feel lonely and it can be really hard. I wrote a piece, an essay, about how you can face those brutal facts, the tactics that we can use to help people understand the science and the ways to hold on hope. In the Atlantic, it's called How to Talk About Coronavirus. If, um, if you are in a similar situation to Asher or in a really different place, we'd love to hear from you, whether you're an essential worker or just anyone out there who wants to share your experience. Send us an email at stories at storycollider.org with COVID in the subject line. When you make decisions for your company, you always look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing and shipping to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your process to make your business more efficient which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, books, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart if you sell online, schedule package pickups through the dashboard, and automatically see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers, with rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are, even on the go. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other business decision makers with Stamps.com. Sign up at Stamps.com with code PROGRAM for a special offer that includes a four-week trial, plus free postage, and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM. Our next story today is from D.B. Firstman. It was recorded in February 2020 at Union Hall in Brooklyn, New York. The theme that night was the science of sex and love. It's a beautiful spring day in 1994. I'm a 30-year-old woman sitting at a desk in the office of my longtime gynecologist, Dr. Sweeney. Dr. Sweeney is a fatherly type in his late 60s, salt and pepper hair, ruddy face, and glasses, and I'm in his office on this fine day to ask him whether or not I actually have a clitoris, and if not, why? Why should I need to ask him such a question? Because my girlfriend at the time couldn't find it, <laughs> and despite my protestations and pointing to where the magic button should be, 
She insisted there was something definitely wrong with my sexual anatomy and that I needed to find some answers for my own sake. Now, I will tell you that at that point in my life, I was aware of anatomical differences between me and most women, mainly because I went through multiple surgeries between the ages of 2 and 18 so that I could have, quote, a normal sex life and, quote, normal menstrual cycle. But when I asked the doctors, such as, do I, why can't I have children? Why do I have to take estrogen? And doesn't a clitorectomy mean the removal of? They gave me only the most basic and rudimentary answers. So we're back in Dr. Sweeney's office and I say to him, Dr. Sweeney, do I or do I not have a clitoris? He pauses, he thinks, he takes a deep breath and he says, no, Diane, you do not. And I'm like, okay. And I say, but what about that bump where my labia meet? And he says, that's just a bump. There are no nerve endings at the end of it. He goes on to tell me that the reason for all my surgeries growing up was that I was born chromosomally male with what's called an intersex condition. Basically, my body was a melange of male and female gonadal tissue. And back in 1963, when I was born, people like me were assigned a female gender 99 times out of 100 because it's easier to fashion a vagina than a penis out of gonadal tissue. Intellectually, I actually understood this. Emotionally, no fucking way. <laughs> because what it basically meant was I had been misled by the doctors and my mother for 30 years growing up, and it basically meant that I was living a lie for my first 30 years. I thanked him for his time. I left his office. I was hurt. I was confused. I was depressed. I was angry. And I didn't know what to do. I called my mother. I said, Mom, we need to have a talk. I went to her house, knocked on the door, and we sat down. I said, Mom, I just found out that I'm intersex. Dr. Sweeney told me. And a look crossed her face, concern and sadness. And she said, oh, I thought you knew already. I thought the doctors had told you. And at that point, I'm, I'm confused and, and livid because A, she let me go through all these procedures, and B, she hid the truth from me. And I said, no, Mom, no, actually, no, they didn't tell me anything. And she went on to say that she was told not to tell me, as that was the proper etiquette or protocol back in those days, and to just raise me as a female going forward, because that was the easiest thing to do back then. And intellectually, again, I understood this. Emotionally, again, no fucking way. <laughs> and what was really weird was, well, not weird, but also pathetic. <laughs> that's, that's a better word, pathetic. 
was when I asked the doctors about who was supposed to tell me what was going on. They thought that my mother was supposed to tell me. But if she hadn't, they were going to tell me if I ever moved away from New York City. <laughs> Which means that potentially I would have never found out about my true identity had it not been for the girlfriend who couldn't find my clit. <laughs> so from that point, I started having flashbacks. Flashbacks to childhood where I can distinctly remember being eight or nine years old and being wheeled down to a cold basement studio in the hospital, told to strip naked, stand in front of a wall with horizontal lines on it, and have pictures taken of me for inclusion in what I believe to be case studies or, God forbid, medical textbooks. And apparently the hospital thought I was some sort of miracle child. I was trotted out in front of hospital residents. I was trotted out in front of visiting doctors. They thought I was something special. I thought I was special because I was just so damn smart. IQ, IQ test off the charts, Stuyvesant High School, Mensa, fat lot of good it did me then. <laughs> my life, having known, having found out about my true identity, my life actually got worse in the 18 months thereafter. In quick succession, the girlfriend who couldn't find my clit broke up with me. A promotion I was supposed to get at work went to somebody else, and my estranged father passed away all within 18 months. And my life basically crashed down upon me on Labor Day weekend of 1995. I took an overdose of sleeping pills and vodka. I lay down in bed, and as I was drifting off, I had second thoughts. I alerted my housemate. She whisked me away to the emergency room at Park Slope Hospital. Whereupon the very first thing said to me by the attending ER physician was, are you transgender? My life is in this man's hands, and that's his first interaction with me. I was so fucking scared at that moment of being treated differently based upon my answer that I told him the truth. I told him I was intersexed while they were pumping me full of Ipecac. Managed to survive that. Then I checked myself into a mental health facility and I spent the next two weeks asking some very big questions. What do I do now? Do I want a sex change? What am I? Am I a lesbian? Am I a bisexual? Am I a man? Am I a woman? Am I a gender fuck? Am I a human being? And possibly most importantly, how could I ever trust anybody who says they care about me ever again? I managed to get out of the mental facility and I jumped into weekly therapy. Obviously, I had a lot to process. One of the first things I had to process was the concept of having a sex change. And though I realized that my brain seemed to be wired for male, male abilities and male interests, emotionally, I felt more connected towards women 
And so I thought maybe I shouldn't go through with this. And also, I was afraid at that time of what it would do to my mother to go through this. Now, I know what you're thinking. Weren't you just livid at her just a couple of months ago, weeks ago? And I had gotten to the point in my relationship with her and in my knowledge of my condition that I really understood that she did what she did out of love and that she really had nowhere else to turn. She, she had no other resources to consult as to how to, how to raise me. So she did the best she could with what she had. Flash forward 20 years. My mother passes away in 2015. And I leave, ther leave weekly therapy a year later. I'm still gender conflicted. I still hate my body. I hate my breasts. I can't achieve orgasm. And most days I feel like I'm floating through the gender continuum. I don't feel like I have any contemporaries. I don't feel like anybody else is like me. Now, I'm still seeing a therapist, a psychiatrist for medication maintenance, but I don't bring the topic of intersexuality and gender identity into my sessions with him. That's how deep, you know, how, how fucked up I am about this topic. All I talk about is my job, how much I hate it, and, and the book I'm writing, how that is going. But in the meantime, the world of gender norms has exploded. You've got non-binary people, people who don't ascribe to either male or female. You've got gender-fluid people, people who ascribe to one or the other, depending on the day of the week. You've got transgender people. One of my friends is a woman named Christina Carl, who used to be a guy named, Christine, named Chris Carl until her early 30s, and is now a successful baseball writer with a lesbian wife. There's a co-worker, a transgender co-worker at work, who walks and talks with pride and purpose every day I see her. Me, I feel stuck. And I have, I feel like the, the anger is burning, is building up in me, like I have nowhere to turn. And I, I remember something that my longtime psychologist asked me many years ago. She said, what do you do with all of your anger? And I think about that and I say, I turn my anger inward. And if anybody knows Psych 101, if you turn your anger inward, it leads to worsening depression. And so I was reaching a fight or flight moment with regard to my gender identity. I was either going to end up back in a mental health facility or I was going to find an answer. Lo and behold, on the morning of December 9th, 2019, I woke up, got myself dressed, got on the subway, and all of a sudden I had an epiphany. I finally, finally finally realized and allowed myself to think that I didn't have to accept 
the gender and the body assigned to me by those doctors. I could be Christina Carl. I could be that transgender woman from work. I could be any fucking thing I wanted to be. I I have free will. I came out that day as non-binary. And I let everybody know, all my friends on Facebook and Twitter know that they should stop calling me Diane and start calling me DB, which happened to be my first and middle initials. I called my best friend of 40 years, who's known me through thick and thin, but she hasn't known some of the really deep, dark places that I've gone emotionally. And I told her that non-binary felt like the truest self-identity I could, I could ascribe myself to. It felt real. It felt, it, 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 it resonated with me that, you know, being, being assigned female didn't. And so that night, December 9th, a feeling of self-esteem and self-worth washed over me. I felt valid. I felt self-validation for the first time in maybe all my 56 years. And by the end of that week, I had filed for a legal name change, which, by the way, became official this morning. Filed for the legal name change, I investigated getting my gender marker on my birth certificate changed from F to X. I changed my work, my email, and my. Uh, I asked people at work to start calling me DB and using the pronoun they. So now when I go into doctor's offices, I check their intake forms and I make sure that their gender section offers more than just male and female, and that they actually have a gender identity section. And if they don't, I walk up to their desk, I hand them back their form, and I say, it's 2020, time to get your act together. For me, going forward, I'm planning on having my breast removed because I want to get my body back to the unmodified state it was in before the doctors pumped me full of estrogen. I don't want to be a man, but I'm not comfortable being a woman based on the assignment of doctors from so long ago. So going forward, every December 9th, which happens to be my half birthday, I am celebrating non-binary Independence Day. (laughs) Watch out, world. D.B. Firstman is finally happy in mind and body, and I'm here to stay. That was D.B. Firstman. D.B. is a lifelong New Yorker born and raised in Queens. A career-long civil servant, they are a data analyst for the city of New York, crunching numbers in Excel and SPSS. Be still my heart. (laughs) 
a lifelong baseball fan. They have had their work published on ESPN.com and BaseballProspectus.com, as well as in the Sabre Baseball Research Journal. Their first book, Hall of Name, Baseball's Most Magnificent Monikers, From the Only Nolan to Van Lingle Mungo and more, is available on Amazon and local indie bookstores. I'm going to buy DB's book and pretend like baseball is still happening. That's my plan. (laughs) We are so grateful to Janice and to DB for sharing their stories. And the Story Collider is also grateful for the support of Science Sandbox, a Simons Foundation initiative dedicated to engaging everyone with the process of science. Story Collider is led by me, Artistic Director Aaron Barker. And me, Executive Director Liz Neely. We couldn't do it without the help of our Deputy Director Nissa Greenberg, our Operations Manager Lindsay Cooper, and the rest of our amazing team. The stories featured in today's podcast were from shows produced by Paula Croxon, Nissa Greenberg, Gastor Almonte, and me, Aaron Barker. <laughs> Good job, team. <laughs> the podcast is edited by John Chen and Gwen Hogan. The theme music is by Ghost. Special thanks to Caveat and Union Hall for hosting these shows. And thanks so much to everybody who's supporting us right now, listening to this podcast, watching our shows. Yeah, absolutely. And we're really especially grateful for our Patreon supporters right now at patreon.com slash the story collider. We are so grateful for your support right now. And uh, thanks for listening, everybody. Stay safe. Save big money on everything for your next project at Menards. Spring is here making it the perfect time for outdoor projects. Suncast storage sheds are an excellent solution for protecting outdoor lawn and gardening tools. They're easy to assemble, and the all-weather construction provides water resistance and UV protection. Save big on Suncast storage sheds. View our selection of Suncast products today in-store and on Menards.com. Save big money.